With food, what's so beautiful is that the solution not only can help heal the system, but can help heal you and give you that health outcome you want. Welcome to the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast. I'm your host, Mary Purdy, integrative dietitian and nutrition educator. Today, we are talking about something that is super important to me, which is the impact of our food system on planetary health. To speak about the relationship between a healthy diet and a healthy planet, we are joined today by Kate Geegan. Kate is an award-winning registered dietitian and sustainable food expert working at the intersection of food, health, and sustainability. She is the co-founder of Food and Planet, an organization dedicated to reaching healthcare professionals to drive the adoption of sustainable diet patterns. She's also the author of Go Green, Get Lean, Trim Your Waistline with the Ultimate Low-Carbon Footprint Diet. Welcome, Kate. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's such an honor to be here. Thanks, Mary. Now, you know that talking about planetary health is my main focus and passion these days. But before we begin, just so that people don't think we're talking about astrology, can you please define the term planetary health for our listeners? Yes, yes. That's a great grounding, I think, for the conversation I'm excited to have with you today. Yeah, so planetary health actually sort of first popped into the healthcare jargon in 2015, and it came out of a joint report from the Lancet and the Rockefeller Foundation that really sort of pinpointed that if we're talking about public health and human health, no matter which sort of star in the constellation you want to look at when it comes to human health, it really is dependent on the Earth's underlying systems. So I like to think of planetary health as the operating system of planet Earth that we all depend on, whether it is for food production, clean water, clean air, vibrant soils, oceans that are rich in a diversity of food for people around the world. So it's really that fundamental operating system of earth is the baseline on which all of public health and human health depends. Excellent. That really helps, I think, for people to enter into this conversation, knowing that that's what we are discussing today. And you are a dietitian. And when we think of dietitians, we don't often think of, oh, the ocean and the soil and the climate. So how did you start to pursue a career as a dietitian, raising awareness about the impact of our food and agriculture system on planetary health? <laughs> it's so funny you asked me this question, Mary, because last night my husband said to me, I think your real title is futurist. Like you happen to be a registered dietitian, but you've always been sort of five to 10 years ahead of where the, the zeitgeist is or what people are talking about. I wrote my book in 2007. It came out in 2009, but I had written a low carbon footprint diet proposal in 2007. And my entry point to it is really just looking around at life. I live in the Intermountain West. I live in a ski town. And at that time, mayors of the ski communities were talking about climate change and the impact on snow and the skiing industry. And it dawned on me at the time, I had toddlers at that time. And I thought, gosh, what the climate models are predicting when my children are my age, 
there won't be snow below 10,000 feet in the Intermountain West if we don't change trajectory. And so all of the mayors of the West were getting together and talking about this in snowpack. And I just remember sitting at the playground, pushing my toddler on the swing, asking myself, huh, I wonder if diet has anything to do with it. And that's what started me to connect the dots. And it was really born of I've always in my role as a dietitian been focused on wellness because food is not the nutrition facts panel. People eat food. They don't eat nutrients. They don't eat facts. They eat taste and flavor and pleasure and enjoyment and ritual and comfort. To me, that through line became instantly clear that we had to go both downstream to how food was contributing to our species and our viability as a species moving forward. And I say that very seriously as a parent with kids from a generational lens of we are the first generation. And to me, it's a tremendous honor. We're the first generation to really be fully aware of what is at stake and the last generation to take decisive action in this window where we can really have a meaningful impact on shaping the future. So I think that's actually a really amazing time to be alive. I know there's a lot of sort of sensationalism and you can get caught into the doom scrolling, but the the lens that I'm at, which is so great around planetary health now is I'm with those innovators and people building incredible ideas and new models of what is possible for us. Thank you for bringing the hope into it, because I think you're right. A lot of people don't even want to get into the scrolling because of the doom that's associated with climate change. Mm -hmm. For your perspective, it started with a real personal journey of thinking about your kids. Are we leaving a planet for our kids that is going to be viable in terms of being able to grow food or go skiing or whatever (laughs) the case may be? But you started understanding that diet or food or how we are producing our food has a role in environmental health and actually plays a role in climate emissions or greenhouse gas emissions rather. Can you tell us a little little bit about the role that the food and agricultural system plays in the production and contribution of greenhouse gases? Yes, absolutely. And with your permission, I'd love to even widen that lens a little bit more to the different operating systems on planet Earth, because there's a tremendous focus on carbon right now, which is important. But one of my colleagues talks about carbon myopathy, that we're almost looking just at carbon without looking more holistically. So we just want to be mindful of that framing. But yeah, if you think of the impact that our food takes on the planet, agriculture globally uses 40% of viable earth landmass. It's 70% of all fresh water on the planet. It's 25% of greenhouse gas emissions right up there with the energy sector to your point, Mary. So it's very significant from a greenhouse gas emission standpoint, but also it is the leading driver of biodiversity loss, of deforestation, of land use change. And we're bumping up against, we also want to remember 70% of earth is covered by oceans. And 2 billion of the Earth's inhabitants depend on oceans for protein as their primary source of this essential macronutrient. So really looking at that holistic lens of 
like in our body, if we have our circulatory system and our nervous system and our digestive system and things that all of the organ listeners are very attuned to and how they can stay healthy, almost think of planetary health as layering on a lens of how do I help the earth's systems, fundamental systems stay healthy and vibrant to continue to nourish us because we, we are connected. There's no out there and nature's out there and we're here. It's all connected. It's really exciting. And I know that can sound very complex, but it's actually, it can be also very simple and very beautiful. And thank you for bringing it down to that level too, because we are all connected and it is all connected the way that all of our systems in our body are all connected. And when it comes to making dietary changes, it isn't necessarily going to be easily made by a bunch of individuals. It really is about these systemic changes that we need to make. So the individual can make a difference because consumer demand actually drives change systemically. But how can we take action as individuals, as communities, as uh, systems thinkers, as members of systems to mitigate climate change through shifts in dietary patterns? I love how you framed it. And I really think you just hit the nail on the head about what is so unique about the food system and our potential. We really hold the power as consumers, as individuals, and our everyday choices absolutely the food industry is listening. I mean, we can link this to numerous trends. You've been a dietitian a long time. I've been a dietitian a long time. The industry pivots quickly when consumers speak with their wallets about the kinds of products they want to buy and the kinds of companies they want to do business with. So it actually is very nimble and very quick to pivot compared to other industries, say the auto industry or something where you've got all this really entrenched, these entrenched interests in the status quo. So it's very much that anyone listening today, the beauty is your grocery purchases, what you choose to buy, where you choose to buy it from. If you are looking for organic certification, if you are following a primarily plant-based diet with lots of different plant foods, these will very much shape the future of the food system. And so again, I would just point to the immediacy. And then also the beauty of this is we really also know that eating in ways that promote planetary health are actually what promote human health, longevity, and vitality as well. And there's more options than ever in the plant arena and in just sustainable food systems that make it delicious and exciting and also very affordable and accessible. And I think some of that can get lost in the messaging. People assume this is something that can feel elitist or out of reach. And there's definitely work to be done, I think, at the government level and at sort of the farm bill level to make make sure we're supporting the right food production so it's affordable to all Americans. But when I was first starting out in this work, Mary, I mean, you could not go to a big box retailer and find a lot of sustainable options. And now that's very different. You can find organic produce, you can find sustainably farmed or sustainably sourced seafood. You can buy healthy plant fats that are done with, you know, fair trade and organic certification labeling to, you know, no matter how you show up, whether you're shopping at your local farmer's market or buying direct from food entrepreneurs on the web or going to big box, like there are strategies, no matter where you are in your journey to start activating this in your shopping cart, on your plate, in your smoothie, whatever fits your lifestyle. 
Excellent. And you've already given us a wealth of ideas right there in that last couple of sentences. So, I mean, what I'm hearing is that sustainability is sexy, right? So the brands <laughs> out there, they are taking note. When they hear us say, we want more of this and this kind of ingredient, they are listening. Let's take a brief pause to hear from our sponsor, Orgain. Orgain has an ongoing commitment to the environment, which includes sourcing high quality, planet-friendly ingredients to deliver good, clean nutrition. Many Orgain products, such as their plant-based protein powders, are certified organic and non-GMO. In addition, Orgain's Green Initiative is dedicated to reducing the environmental impact of their packaging and has already saved 30,000 pounds of plastic annually. To learn more about going green with Orgain, visit Orgain.com. Now let's get back to our conversation with Kate. I've heard you say a few items that may be more beneficial, more sustainable, more sustainably sourced. What are some of the food groups that you feel like are areas for consumers to focus on or food service providers even to focus on that are most sustainable or have the least environmental or planetary impact? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. When people want to know, where do I start? How do I dig in? What feels doable? So a couple of broad themes. I'll offer a couple of ideas and really anyone listening, pick what works for you and just, you can pick with one thing and get started. And then once you've sort of mastered that, move on to the next thing. This does not have to be just like any healthy diet change or shift you're trying to make. The first one broadly is looking at the ratio of animal products to plants that you're eating. And really within that, my caveat is minimally processed whole food ingredients as the baseline. And then on top of that, you know, as you get into more refined or portable and on the go, but we want to have a lot of whole foods and lots and lots of plant foods. And if you have a visual of a shopping cart, I sort of say if that bottom bigger basket, just as a ratio, even for people to, to get in their mind, the bottom big basket, abundant, plant products. And then up top, that smaller is your animal. If you're kind of thinking of like, what's the ratio look like at the grocery store. And then beyond that, whether you're vegan or vegetarian, or you just want to start being more flexitarian, many cultural food pathways exist that are naturally more plant-based. You can look at the blue zones. You can look at the Mediterranean diet. And then beyond that, beyond like the broad brush of plant products, plant foods, an abundance and a diversity of plant foods. I would say sourcing your animal products with care is essential. And that's for many reasons, probably too many to go into on this podcast, but the two points I'd make is animals are what they eat. So making sure you're choosing sourcing that is really aligned with sustainability principles, organic, pasture-raised, ideally small craft that you really know the sourcing and the, the origin of that animal. And then with same with seafood, if you eat seafood to make sure you are insisting on, this is my next tip, third-party certifications. So 
the beauty and the why third-party certifications for any of your products are a real tool for the consumer, and I think a very important tool for the consumer, is because it's not marketing speak, it's legal regulation that they are adhering to a set of standards that you as a consumer can really trust. So when you see that organic certification, that's much more powerful to me as a dietitian and as a sustainable diet expert than any marketing speak about like, oh, we craft and source sustainably. But if you have no certifications, then you just want to be mindful. And and that can happen, right, Mary? Like we go to the farmer's market and you might meet the farmer or the rancher. I live in Idaho. So there's many ranchers doing beautiful work here who can't afford or don't have the bandwidth to get the formal certification. That doesn't make sense for them. But in that case, know your farmer, know your rancher, have that conversation. So there's all sorts of ways you can participate in the ecosystem, And then the last third tip, and then I'll leave it at that. So we said plant-based primarily with animal products as the accent, really be careful around sourcing for those products and third-party certifications and labels can be your friend. And then the third thing I'd say is in our global supermarkets and supply chains, ingredients that you use in your everyday pantry, maybe things like coconut oil or coffee or spices really insist on high standards of stewardship for those ingredients as well. And that's because they are coming from areas of the planet that are some of the last arcs of biodiversity that we have. And collectively, we want to be ensuring farmers there and producers there are getting fair wages, producing products in ways that honor the earth and integrity and help lead us with sustainable foods. Because some of these countries, the regulations might not be quite as stringent as we're used to in the U.S. So those layers of fair trade certified, Rainforest Alliance certified, organic, again, for your like tropical things. And I know because coconut oil is a really big trend right now. Palm oil has been used in a lot of food as we've evolved from trans fats. So making sure we're not contributing to some of those problems are easy things we can do while we're shopping. Fantastic. That is so important for us to broaden the scope of what we think of as being sustainable, right? It goes beyond organic. It goes into uh, worker welfare, fair trade, as you mentioned. Are we protecting the environment? Are we protecting the people who are working in those environments? And I might add chocolate to the list of your cocoa. Yes. And your, How did I forget your... chocolate? It's all food group. <laughs> I don't know. I know. It's, it's, you know. it's one of my favorite food groups and I don't want to see it get lost. And you're, you're mentioning the word biodiversity, which I think again, is a term that not that many people are familiar with, nor do they recognize why it matters for them in terms of their health. They think like, oh, we don't have as many you know, species of insects or we don't have as many species of this apple anymore. Why does that matter for us? Why should people care about biodiversity as it relates to their health? That's such a great question and so powerful on many levels. So the planet itself, the web of life needs biodiversity for resilience. And here's what's amazing. Mary, our bodies, our biology thrives with more diverse foods, right? Like it almost mirrors if you step into your health practitioner's office and they say, hmm, I notice you're kind of eating the same foods all the time. Even quinoa and kale, if that's all you eat, that's not a healthy diet. So, but if we 
consciously not only consume a diet that is biodiverse, that's going to shift the food system because we know what is the statistic? It's like 90% of all crops are six foods. We should be eating a more diverse diet for human resilience in us, more micronutrients, more antioxidants and phytochemicals. It impacts our microbiome more positively. And I know that's a real hot area of gut health and digestive health and the microbiome when we are incorporating a more diverse group of foods. And then reflecting that in a more diverse food system, it's showing up in things like cover crops, in agricultural systems. Even pollinators right now in our agriculture, one out of every three bites of food we eat on this planet are dependent on pollinators. And so now there's a big push to create a more diverse food system for pollinators on farms because monoculture, just as eating one food is not good for humans, monoculture for the bees is not good either. So. I hope I'm laddering up to biodiversity creates resilience in systems. They can withstand shocks. And if you look around and think of climate and drought and fire and these bigger water systems when they come through, if we have more biodiversity by species or by in the systems level, right? Like the region, the land has more biodiversity, that creates resilience in the system, which we are actually going to need more as we move forward into more chaotic climate and drought extremes. Absolutely. Resilience is, is going to be key. And we're hearing that this is diversity in insects, in plants, in the microorganisms, in the soil, all of which are going to contribute to a healthier food system, a healthier plant, which has more nutrients, a broader spectrum of nutrients, including those phytochemicals, which help to protect us, our health, feed our gut microbiome and give us more diversity in our gut microbiome. So yes, exactly. Exactly. It's all connected. And soil. Like I think if any of your listeners right now are following what's happening in soil science and how we need more microbial diversity. And that creates more nutrient diversity and uptake in the plants and more resilience in the plants. Then when we eat those foods, we get those benefits. And that's an intersection that's exploding right now. And super interesting is what is that benefit to human health and human health outcomes by participating in eating foods that are produced in more sustainable, healthy ways, right? Yes. And this is foods that are produced using more organic methods or yes. using fewer chemicals. There's also regenerative agriculture, which is a real hot topic right now too. Do you have thoughts on that in terms of promoting that and, and how people can, can advocate for more regenerative agricultural practices? In my experience, so when I was pitching my book, everything, the terminology was eco. Everything was like eco-friendly, eco-smart, eco-choices, eco-conscious. And then it moved to green. And then the language moved to sustainable. And now the language has moved to regenerative. So I love the concept. And I think it points to the truth, which is it's not enough to be sustainable. We actually have to be also replenishing what has been depleted in this post-World War II industrial model. Like, the land's exhausted. We've sort of come to the end of this system and we need to replenish in addition to just being sustainable. But regenerative, in my own opinion, is the Wild West right now. I see everybody using it because there's no 
We talked about those labels and certifications and having real rigor around what that means when you have a label like organic. I'll be very honest with you. There's a lot of people using the terminology of regenerative that doesn't even meet the standard of organic. So if mm. your consumers are listening now, I think there's work to do and there are brands working towards certifications that have the term regenerative or even regenerative organic in them. And I, I really applaud that, but it's early days. And it's one of those in the media, we say there's a lot of sizzle, but not a lot of steak. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> or we could say there's uh there's a there's there's a lot of sizzle, but not a lot of bean, not there a lot of hey, Sorry, not a pulse. media term. We could say there's a little bit of movement, but not a lot of pulse. Get the pulse <laughs> in there. <laughs> I want to be also make sure that people understand what regenerative agriculture is, because again, that might be a term kind of like biodiversity where we know there's no official definition for it, although there is that new label that has just come out last year, but it's kind of like a farming as medicine philosophy. How would you describe regenerative agriculture for our listeners who may be less familiar with it? Regenerative ag, again, whoever is saying they're using regenerative ag, if you are buying a product or listening to maybe if you have health practitioners who are going to a, a session sponsored by somebody, you want to understand how they are defining regenerative ag. So the first thing I would just say is I'll give you what I perceive regenerative ag to be, but it is being used in many different ways across the industry. But for me, it is a set of practices that enhances the earth's fundamental systems. It's rebuilding biology of soil, of waterways, of waste, and nutrient cycling in ways that enhance and build up both output, create more output and more robust production while also preserving environmental capital, if you will, for future generations. So some people talk about regen ag and then you get down to it and they're putting cover crops on. Well, cover crops is one suite, but if you're not addressing pesticide use and insecticides and fertilizers, that to me is not regenerative practice. That's you're using cover crops, that's great, but that's not regenerative. That might be one bullet point under a suite of it. I mean, is that what you're seeing? The way that I think about it is building health back into the system in order to create a system or an ecosystem that is exactly what you're saying, you know, preserving the resources, but also helping to create food that is incredibly healthy by making sure the soil is healthy by fewer agrochemical inputs, covering crops, meaning, or using cover crops, which if people don't understand what that is, that is actually growing crops in the off season, making sure that that soil is staying connected to the earth's uh, fungal network or the mycorrhizal network underneath the ground. And things like, gosh, using compost. There's so many different components. In addition, potentially incorporating uh, animal livestock as part of that picture, using the poop from the animal, using the crop residues perhaps for uh, the animal feed. So there's just wonderful symbiotic relationship that occurs. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, regenerative agriculture is about building that health back into the system, using things 
techniques that help to build the soil, make sure that we don't deplete the soil to help create healthy food for healthier people, incorporating livestock into the relationship of that ecosystem in a symbiotic relationship that helps to feed the soil and also perhaps the crop residues help to feed the livestock. I hear you that it's not just one thing. And I think there can be some greenwashing that happens with certain organizations or industries that are saying they're using regenerative agriculture, but they're not really filling out the whole picture, which is what is ultimately creates a more regenerative food system. And I think this is important because there was a recent report put out by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, that talked about the extreme weather events that we are seeing right now, drought and, and flood that are caused or driven by climate change, have exposed millions of people to food insecurity, reduced water security. So climate change has not only put pressure on food production and access, especially in the vulnerable re regions, but it, it also is impacting the nutritional quality of the food. So can you share a bit about how climate and this crisis has changed the nutritional quality of our food and may continue to do so over the next decade? Yeah, I mean, that's really where the rubber meets the road, right? Hopefully that's a better analogy for this <laughs> podcast. Absolutely. Um, plants and animals are adapting to climate change too. So as temperatures rise, as there's disruptions in weather patterns, as soils dry, as oceans, the pH changes, we're seeing changes in nutrients, nutrient profiles, degradation, whether it's staple, you know, staple crops like wheat and corn and differences in nutrient composition and phytochemicals and antioxidants in particular. And that's, that's really these protective benefits that are part of what we obtain when we consume these foods to even as food sources are changing for fish during migrations, we're seeing changes in nutrient composition. So I would say it's early stages, especially linking through to like health outcomes and detrimental health outcomes. But it is part of that story that nature is adapting and talk to any fisherman or lobsterman or someone who is on the coasts and animals are moving, seasons are shifting of where we're getting fish and lobster, what the seasons are. It really goes back to that systems thinking. If you can widen the lens and start like away from the nutrition facts panel to like, what is the food pattern and the diet pattern you're following? And then beyond that, like what choices are supporting systems health? That's because we are connected and we are part of that. And so I think we're at this exciting point where it really has come to the individual recognizing they're part of that system. And with food, what's so beautiful is that the solution not only can help heal the system, but can help heal you and give you that health outcome you want. And there's, it's such a win-win and there's many, many places in climate change that don't feel like they have that degree of win-win that can be so immediate. And I know healthcare providers are also part of the system. And you are the founder of the organization Food and Planet, which has this amazing goal of reaching 1 million healthcare professionals by 2025 to talk about the effects of, of the food system on planetary health. So why did you decide to reach uh, healthcare professionals and, and what role do you feel like they can play? 
Oh, well, thanks. And I, I do just want to point out, I'm a co-founder and I have three incredible other co-founders who are also dietitians and have really been leaders in this movement. As people are making the links that human health and planetary health are connected, we saw a gap to help health professionals understand this faster and start implementing in their practice real concrete specific ways that they can evolve their profession to integrate these concepts. And our core thesis at Food and Planet is that there's actually four dimensions of sustainable diets. So nutrition and health is one of those dimensions. Sociocultural considerations is another huge dimension. So how do we honor these amazing cultural pathways that have lived sustainably with the planet for millennia. And a lot of that has been lost as we've moved to this sort of homogenized Western diet, but there's many, many cultural food pathways that offer amazing tools for us as we move forward together to look at. And so how do we consider sociocultural and include everybody in this conversation. Economics are a big piece of it. Economics for the consumer, for people in the supply chain, fair wages, fair living standards for people who produce our food. I think a lot of that, the rigidity and fragility of our food system was exposed in COVID when we saw who really is on the front lines and most vulnerable and a lot of food service workers and supply chain workers. So how do we bring them into healthy, resilient, sustainable food systems so they can benefit and participate? And then how do we support brands who are doing the right thing and making the right decisions? So anyway, our, our mission at Food and Planet, we have twofold things that we really do. One is supercharged learning for health professionals. And that really involves Mary shining a light on other health professionals who are also doing the work because we are all needed together. There's many incredible points of light in this movement. And so how do we shine a light and already show what is being done and come together and create a real unified voice? We think there's an opportunity, especially for our dietetics community, to really step into this opportunity and lead and lead with grace and humility and a spirit of collaboration, but and together, like moving forward together of what can we build. So that's what we're interested in, supercharged learning, and then also collaborations that advance some of these things that need to be done. So one project we're working on right now is looking at sea plants and how do we engage people more in, you know, the benefits of seaweeds and sea plants and restorative ocean economies and, you know, plant-based diets of the future. Wow, that's super exciting. And I think regenerative ocean agriculture is also a hot buzz topic these days too. So healthcare practitioners can really play a tremendous role here, including dietitians, as you mentioned. And I'm curious, you have this incredible white paper. We have talked about so many things, but I would imagine we are just talking about the tip of the iceberg here. And for those practitioners who want more information, who want to dive deep into the research and the references that I know you provide, as well as tips and tricks that people can put into play as consumers, how can we access that white paper? Tell us about that. Yes. So we did really this white paper was a scoping review to look at what is the state of the science? Where do we have points of alignment that we can be moving forward together? And how this is a real key question in the in the health community. 
we understand these global trends, things we've talked about on this podcast today. We talked about biodiversity. We talked about planetary health. We talked about water systems. How do we keep in mind the global view, but how do we contextualize it to make it local to our people in our community, our eaters, our regional food ecology? So connecting local to global is what we looked at in this paper. And it's really a roadmap of what are the essential strategies our profession can use to accelerate the transition to a healthy, resilient, just, and delicious food system of the future. So it's a really nice roadmap, both the literature base, but also actionable tips of what you can start doing today in your practice and what is a profession, where are our top areas of priority to focus to drive some of these positive changes forward. Will you give us one of those actionable tips to lead us out of this conversation? Because people love taking away action tips when they listen to these podcasts. What can someone <laughs> do? One tip that health professionals, if you're listening, you can help your clients, your community, your target audience understand and adopt underutilized species, biodiverse species, traditional foods, sustainable foods, and even emerging innovations such as alternative proteins or seaweed or heirloom grains and pulses. So that's one example. We are the great translators of how to take a concept like biodiversity and translate it into our communities. And so it shows up in ways that are culturally acceptable, affordable, relevant, and most of all delicious, because those, those rules of the road have not changed at all. People, to get people on board, it has to taste good, feel good, and people wanna participate in something that feels hopeful and positive. Excellent. If it ain't delicious, people are not going to get on board. So that is a key piece there. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and for offering an incredible amount of wisdom, a wealth of knowledge, lots of practical tips, ideas, and of course, this incredible vision for our future, Kate. It's people like you that are going to help make the planet a better place to, to exist upon. So thank you for your work. Great. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. We look forward to having you join us for future episodes of the Good Clean Nutrition Podcast, sponsored by Orgain, where we'll interview more subject matter experts on a variety of health and nutrition-focused topics. To stay up to date on the latest episodes of this podcast, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.